Today on the podcast, we're talking about high-performance culture. Now, when I think about the phrase high-performance culture, I think of a leader that beats their team into submission, that's all results-focused, and pushes people to burnout. But my guest today, Jimmy Burrows, is on a mission to change that perception and the way that we lead teams. He believes that it's possible to build a high-performance culture that delivers profits, engages staff, and actually prevents burnout. So today, he's here to talk all about how. Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff! With years of experience as an officer in the British military and a track record of success as a people leader in top global organizations, Jimmy knows what it takes to build a high-performance culture that delivers results. But it's not what you might think. He realized that traditional approaches to leadership and high-performance team programs were leaving leaders and teams burned out, disengaged, and underperforming. That's why Jimmy and his team of experts from diverse industries have developed a proven approach to building high-performance cultures that help people thrive and be at their best. Based on years of research and hands-on experience, Jimmy helps leaders who want to achieve their full potential without giving up their weekends or sacrificing the well-being of their teams. Jimmy, such a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much, Shane. Great to be here. Great to spend time with you. Thank you. Last time we were hanging out, we were having a conversation and I I remember thinking to myself, I I would love this conversation just to extend much beyond the coffee that we're having right now. I'd love it to extend to into a much longer conversation. And then I we hung up the Zoom call, went away and I was having a think and then I went back and I was like, why don't I get you on the podcast? That makes a lot more sense. That way it's a, it's an easy way for us to continue the conversation, which is fun. I agree. Hey, can I ask you three quick fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? So I was born in the UK in a, a wonderful city called Birmingham, which for those people who don't know where Birmingham is, it's where Cadbury's chocolate comes from, which is the, obviously the most important export from Birmingham. Um, there are many other exports as well. You being one. <laughs> my, yeah, exactly. Including me. I exported myself uh, many times. My first job was uh, the second Gulf War. I was a British Army officer. And so my fresh out of training, my first real job was in Basra, supporting some logistic resupplies in Iraq, just at the very tail end of, of the second Gulf War. And what do I do now? Now I work with leaders and teams to help them essentially step off the ledge of burnout, that kind of feeling of sense of burnout and identify what they can do to build a high performance culture. And we support them through that process. Yeah. One of the things I'm always fascinated about when I ask those three questions is the broad depth of responses that they get, which people, some people say, well, my first job was delivering newspapers. Some people like said I worked in a grocery store. I feel like we skimmed over something, which was a pretty significant part of your career just then. <laughs> do, do you want maybe kind of fill in the gaps of like, now you're working with developing um, high performance cultures, working with leaders. Maybe fill in the gaps between that. How did you get to where you are now and what have you done along the way? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I think everybody's fascinating. Everybody's story is fascinating. And so I'm always thrilled to hear that they were had a paper round or work in a grocery store. I just got lucky, I guess, with, well, I think it's quite a sexy job. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I started off my career in the military after graduating university. And realistically, you know, going into the military as an officer, it's 44 weeks of intensive leadership training. And that leadership training is focused on how do you lead soldiers in battle? 
So it's high pressure, it's high intensity, it's a lot of stresses put on you through those 44 weeks. And the product that comes out of the end of it is reasonably robust in terms of leadership capability. You know, in reality, it's probably more leadership training than nearly everybody else gets in their entire career. Most people get, you know, a couple of weeks here or a couple of months there. So having that luxury of that intensive leadership training at the start of my career was really, really beneficial. When I retired from the military, retired, that sounds really old. Um, when I left the military, sort of six, seven years later, I'd had a pretty busy time there. I'd done three operational tours. I'd done an exchange posting to the Australian army. Through all of those periods of time, I'd always been involved in training or leading soldiers in a theater of operations. And I particularly enjoyed that training piece, creating narratives, creating scenarios, and creating programs that led to people improving their performance. I was recognized for that during my time in the military, um, especially over in Afghanistan. And so when I left and I became a, a civilian, I ended up finding my way into the HR world because I needed to create some sort of continuity or transferable skill and the training thing seemed to, re seemed to resonate. So I ended up working uh, for a company called Fonterra in New Zealand. And over the period of a number of years, worked in their supply chain, worked in their milk supply team, and then ended up in the sort of corporate functions. So the CFO's team and the IS team and, and such like. And what I was doing was building leadership programs, uh, developmental programs, learning and development. And I also got involved in the really exciting world of talent and culture and engagement and all those pieces. Fast forward a bit further, I ended up running recruitment for Westpac. So that was really kind of a, an operational role, getting into the crux of that fast tempo of, of recruitment. And then I decided that HR was fantastic as a career, but it didn't light me up. So I ended up going out and becoming an operational GM in running a, a large P&L in a, a tertiary education institution, which was super interesting. Unfortunately, due to some legislative changes, due to a significant transformation going on in the tertiary education industry, ended up with a sad demise of my career in terms of I burned out in 2017. After spending some time thinking about how do I find my way back from burnout, that has over the last six years, or six and a half years now, has turned itself into a consulting business for how do we stop you burning out? How do we keep you in work and not go through what I went through? And how do we take you from, if we think about that spectrum from burnout to high performance, how do we move you along that line? So that's really where the business came from and, and what I do now. It's incredible. Like even just thinking through all of those pieces that are being almost stitched together to create the work that you do now. I had a conversation with someone on a previous episode and you say that, you know, most of those times you never really fully appreciate the skills and the lessons that you're learning in the moment until you have to look back on the experience and you go, oh gosh, I learned so much of that, which is transferable into the work that I do now. Now, I know that when you use the word high performance culture, people are going to listen to the podcast and they're going to see that it's going to be written somewhere in the, in the promo, or it's going to be, you know, it's just even uh, said in our conversation. And then that immediately brings up all kinds of imagery in people's mind. It really does. Yeah. I think from my perspective, when I first hear it, linking your, I guess, military background to high performance culture, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. It's really hardcore. It's like drive people, it's push people. So when you talk about high performance culture, what's the image that comes into your mind or you hope that would come into the people's minds when they're listening? You know, such an interesting way of asking that question because it does, right? You think, oh, ex-military guy, high performance culture, he must be like thrashing them on the battlefield and shouting at them. In my mind, high performance culture is one where everybody wakes up for work in the morning 
looks forward to going to work, looks forward to working with the people they're working with, knows what they're doing and how that makes a difference and feels safe. And that sort of those very, very basic parameters of I'm kind of engaged and I feel safe are the ones that unlock the magic for the rest of all the other things we do. If you don't have those things, it's very hard to be a high performance culture, whether you've got the best training program in the world, the best sports, high performance sports or military tactics or whatever it might be. It starts with humans. And so I'm a very human-centered, high-performance culturist. I'm so glad you said that because when you said the high-performance, the story that pops into my mind, years and years ago, I read this book written by Lauren Burns. I don't know if you know Lauren Burns. She was a gold medalist in the Olympics for Taekwondo from Australia. And she talks about a high-performance training camp that she went on and she would run a lap of this oval. And when she got to the end, if she came in last, they took a big stick of bamboo and they would smack her across the back of the legs and she would get up and have to run again. And so like there is this immediate association high performance culture that it's we're going to beat you into submission and we're going to beat you into hard work but what you're framing it as which i really love is that if we create the culture in which people can thrive people do their best work and when they do their best work we achieve the outcomes that we were hoping to achieve with high performance in in quotation marks as opposed to beating people we actually invite people into a operating rhythm that is healthy and sustainable is that kind of what i'm hearing you're, you're so you're so right and you know, from, from my perspective, often, more often than not, the clients we become involved with, which tend to be sort of, you know, 10,000 plus people businesses, they've tried the, we're going to bring in an ex-Olympian or we're going to bring in a Marine four-star general or whatever it might be. And they've tried those things. They've tried dialing up the KPIs. They've tried making people work longer hours. They've tried pushing harder. And for some reason, surprisingly, it doesn't work. People are tired. People are exhausted. People are burning out. People are leaving. People are checking out. People are, are quiet quitting. Yeah, from my perspective, we, we come in with a bit of a fresh view on the topic. And we start saying, well, actually, it's kind of the, the Richard Branson model. If you look after your team, they'll look after the customers and the business will do great. Well, it's kind of along those lines. And, and that's where we seem to be gaining our greatest successes is actually starting to shift paradigms in organizations and starting to challenge some of the traditional leadership development principles that have been applied since the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, which is where most of our senior leaders probably went through their last lot of management training and give them some fresh tools and frameworks, which the idea behind them is they're almost commonsensical. Which, so, and, I, and I know common sense isn't common anymore, but the reality of, hey, this is something that if I position it the right way in your head, you go, oh yeah, that seems really obvious. I'm, I can probably do that. And then we say, cool, so how do we support you to do it? And, and that's where we come in. When I wrote Lead the Room, one of the, the frameworks that I, I pictured in the, in the book was the picture of a tree. And it essentially looked at the, the progression from roots to branches to fruit of the tree. And the, the kind of parallel that I drew alongside it was this health to growth to results. And I said, one of the challenges with leadership is that we're often we want the fruit or we want the results and therefore we become really demanding of growth or the branches. And as a result, the root system or what sits below the surface, our culture, our health starts to suffer. And I so said, it's like an inverted tree. And so one of the things we know is if you get what's going on below the surface, right, that culture, that health, it will create growth and ultimately achieve those results in the long term, right? Yes. And to expand on, on that framework, if you are a leader that is expecting your team to fruit and you're not looking after the soil that they're growing in and you're not putting the right nutrients in, it's really hard to blame a tree that doesn't fruit if it's growing in the wrong soil. But we seem to blame our team when they don't perform. 
not to blame the leader either, but it's to say, well, hold on, you need to be a farmer. You need to cultivate the fruit if you want to have a, a good, a good, what's the word? Harvest. Yeah. Look, we look at us jumping into like some farming metaphors and I don't know. You, maybe you've got a farming metaphors is wonderful. <laughs> but I, I agree. And, and the least farming episode. <laughs> so I, I would, I would assume that if we're going to talk about building a high performance culture, instinctively, there is this tendency to go to the things that are the very hard, concrete, very robust, it's goals, it's strategies, it's, you know, what are the things that we're going to do to kind of drive results and performance? What's your perspective on, I mean, you, you talk about a lot of things in your work that actually build high performance culture. What is one or two of those really big things that you see at crucial parts of building that high performance culture? You know, we've, we've boiled it down to five and I won't go into depth on all the five, but essentially has this team got a really lined up sense of purpose? Are all the people in the team sure of their own purpose in contribution to the team purpose? And does everybody understand why they were put on this planet and why they're in, the, in their role? So it's around that sense of purpose. And ideally what we want as well is a team that knows how they're contributing to the organization. So purpose is, is the first big parameter. The second one is, uh, we call it abundance. You could call it psychological safety. You could call it trust. You could call it a variety of things. But it's essentially how do we move people out of fight or flight or freeze which is that cortisol, adrenal, amygdaloidal reaction to all threats of business in the modern VUCA environment to a more abundant space, which is focused on confidence that we can deliver, clarity of delivery, knowing that my team has got my back, knowing my boss has got my back. The third variable that we spent some deep time researching was connection. So uh, do uh, we're essentially tribal animals and humans love to connect. So how do we move people to feeling connected to the tribe they're part of, the business or the organization or the team? How do we connect them to the plan and the why? And how do we connect them to each other and to make sure that they can build networks through the business? So that's the third one, connection. The fourth one is the idea of exploration. So one of the factors we know in that causes a significant burnout is I really want to change it, but my hands are tied or I have no ability to change it. So I get frustrated. Um, or that organization that is really heavily compliance focused and constrains all innovation and new thinking. So we want people to explore and try new stuff. And then the final piece of data comes from the idea of downtime. We deliberately leave that till last in the book and the body of research we talk about, because it's kind of that analogy of if the engine in your car is not working and you turn it off and turn it on again, and it's still not working, turning it off and turning it on again, isn't going to fix it. And so just taking two weeks of vacation isn't going to fix burnout. You've got to go back and diagnose what the issue is, which is probably one of the previous four, work on fixing that. And then when you, when you restart the engine, it, it's good to go and it can win a race. Yeah. I, one of the things I, I, I'm looking through, so there, there's around purpose, abundance, connection, exploration, and downtime. I think really, really profound. I would love to go and dive deep into all of them. What I love about them is that they were not the first things that came to my mind when I think about high performance culture. Traditionally, now I have a bit of a different perspective on it now, but traditionally that would, they, those wouldn't be the first things that come to mind, especially not something like connection. Like if I was to go, okay, I'm going to put a room of leaders together and I'm going to go, all right, tell me the one thing that if you were to prioritize in your business is going to build a high performance culture. I can't imagine that they would survey the top 10 responses would be, yeah, connection would be sitting at number one, uh, because it's, it seems like a much softer way. 
No, it'd be something like measuring performance, wouldn't it, or something like that? <laughs> yeah, measuring performance. It would be about KPIs. It would be about, I don't know, there would be so many other things that feels like they're much more concrete measures. But connection, I, I believe, is actually crucial to building high-performance culture. So can we focus on connection a little bit and tell me a little bit about what kind of drove you to put that as one of the, the pillars of high-performance culture? At the center of high-performance, because... If you don't feel part of something, if you don't feel connected to something, if you don't feel welcomed, it's really hard to do your best work. And if we you know, if we rewind the evolutionary clock back a couple of million years, if you were the caveman that was the lone wolf, uh, your life expectancy was pretty short. If you had somebody to watch out for the saber-toothed tiger while you were looking for berries or trying to hunt down that wild animal um, or to guard the front of the cave, then your likelihood of passing on your genes uh, in your genetic code was much higher. And so we became predisposed through a process of natural selection to want to connect and, and be connected to other people. You can overlay, you know, people like Yuval Harari's work around the development of language and communication and all those other things. We like to be connected. We like to tell stories. We like to be part of something. And we like to feel like we're making a difference, which also links to the purpose and the abundance stuff. The second piece of connection is, is really feeling connected to the plan. And again, you know, you can put all the effort in the world in, but if you're sailing your boat in a different direction to the rest of the fleet, then how are you going to be a high performer? So we need to draw that chart together on the map and go, okay, this is where we're going. Do you know how to get there? What support do you need to get there? Let's connect you with the resources you need, the time you need, the development you need, and you'll probably be more likely to be successful. The third piece is, is connecting in terms of networks and creating a, a way of expanding your sphere of influence. And what we see in a lot of organizations right now is that deep siloization. You know, it's, oh, those te that team over there are idiots or bad people or not delivering what we need or not helping us or, you know, we're trying to get this project across the line and they're just blocking us. And so the ability for a team to build an internal network inside the team, trust each other, develop and, and understand each other, but then start to look outside the team and go, well, where can we leverage enterprise influence across the organization? And this especially applies at the senior levels of the businesses where we work. It's you can't do it on your own. You have to do it with other people. So how do you do that really effectively? And that, that's really the sort of the three big pillars of the connection body of research is, is connecting to the tribe, connecting to the plan and how I deliver the plan and connecting in terms of networks. I agree. Cause I think if I think about a lot of the work that I've been doing in the culture space, when I look at the whole purpose of culture, everything exists around culture because we want to create spaces of belonging and connection. When someone says to me, you know, what is culture? How do you define culture? Which is a big complex piece. I essentially boil it down to it's, it's essentially our collective behaviors and norms. But those collective behaviors and norms allow us to have a pattern of what it looks like to belong within the organization. Now, I think we have a mutual friend, Fiona Robertson, who wrote a book called Rules of Belonging. And she talked about culture as our rules of belonging because they are the things that help us to be able to fit in within a wider group of people. So I, I really like this connection piece because I think it reminds us that if we're going to build high performance culture or any, or any kind of culture, we have to consider the fact that it's about helping people to connect in amongst a, a broader group of people, right? You're exactly along the same lines of what, what I'm thinking in the same way. I'd almost love it if we could switch it around as a, a culture of high performance because then we focus on the culture bit, not the high performance bit. Because the culture is what creates the high performance. The high performance doesn't create the culture. And, and it's almost like, you know, I, I think of it in the same way as engagement as well. Engagement's an outcome. 
culture is an outcome of the activities that go into making engagement happen, that go into making culture happen. So yes, do people feel like they belong? Do people feel like they're doing something meaningful? Do, do they feel safe and part of a tribe, part of something that is going to wrap around them and support them? Or do they feel isolated and alone? And, you know, I think back to when I burned out, one of the significant things was I had three bosses in 18 months, three different executive team members in 18 months. I was a member of a sort of a, a team of GMs of eight, eight or nine GMs and six of them left in two years. So the people that I leaned on in the business to help me get me through, to be my sounding board, to, to support maybe the influence of some of my initiatives, I didn't have that support. So it was really hard to be a high performer if you're not connected and actually you're isolated. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So one of the things that I think about if we're going to focus on, let's just focus on the area of connection with your team right now. I think we know the impact of a lack of connection. You see a whole lot more isolation, silos, loneliness within the team, people who don't want to show up to work. Or we're talking about, you know, getting people into the office for some aspects of work. And they go, well, why would you want to come to the office if, you, if you're still just as alone as you are when you're at home or isolated or disconnected? So we know the consequences of a lack of connection, which is low performance, loneliness, all those kind of elements that are flowing from that. How do you diagnose whether you've got a lack of connection with your team? So if you were looking at your team and you're going, uh, I don't know if this is an issue for us right now. How do you, I guess, what are the symptoms you might notice? What are the problems you might see that might allude to the idea that there's a connection problem within the team do you know what i think there's probably two i'll come at this from two angles or two different ways that might be useful that one of the core paradigms we talk about in connection is connect with the person not the position and so when you're looking around your team and often we sort of go through the cliche routine of oh i know when their birthday is and i know what their husband or wife is called but do we know what's important to them? Do we know what their aspirations are? Do we know what their goals are? Do we know if they've got a sick kid or an old, an old parent or they've got caregiver responsibilities? And are we making roads to try and support those goals, aspirations or needs in a way that makes them feel connected to us? So it's not about I want to be connected to you. It's I want to create a situation where you feel connected to me. We talk about a concept called the relationship bank account. And if you're always that manager or that leader who's making the withdrawal, then probably your sense of connection is fairly low because you're overdrawn in that bank account. If you're constantly paying in and earning interest on your deposits with your team, then chances are your connection is going to be stronger. So if the only thing you do with your team is you ask them for things, send them tasks to do, make sure they deliver and performance manage them, then maybe your sense of connection is going to be low and you'll probably be aware of that by you don't really know what's important to your team. You don't know what, you haven't had a conversation to find out whether their career goals, aspirations and needs. I was going to say, who'd have thought that the solution that we're all looking for is to have a conversation? <laughs> I know so much of it. <laughs> like you said before, common sense answers are less common than you think and it is a very straightforward answer to some of our challenges. Do you know the the biggest single tool that we give leaders in our organizations is a really effective one-to-one -one format and we just encourage them to have a connection every week for 10 to 15 minutes in some context and so you know the context for every manager employee relationship tends to differ but make sure you're connecting with them in a, it could be a coffee it could be lunch together it could be a sit down one-to-one -one, it could be a round table meeting but just make sure you're connecting with everybody in some way and, and asking those questions 
The other connection point that is, is based on some really interesting work by a guy called Daniel Coyle is around the idea of vulnerability. And we talk about vulnerability in terms of like almost like a helix spiral going down. And if you're at the surface level of vulnerability, you don't share very much and they don't share very much with you. If you're really vulnerable with people and you're talking about things like fears and mistakes, uh, concerns, worries, errors, health, those things are where you start to see people having deeper level vulnerable conversations, then chances are there's a higher level of connection in your team. So if your conversations on a, a Monday tend to revolve around, did you see the game at the weekend and, and no, right, let's get into it. Chances are the level of vulnerability is, is not super deep. And so therefore the connection is not super deep. If you're having conversations around, you know, how is your mother's cancer treatment going? Or, um, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about the dog. Do you need any support? I can remember when my dog died and do you know what? I was so cut up about it. And, I, you know, and these are, again, they're relatively commonsensical conversations, right? But it's the ability to execute those in an authentic and meaningful way that actually drives the connection. So what we look for when we do the diagnosis with teams and organizations is, are we seeing evidence of some of those artifacts and some of those conversations taking place? Or are we seeing it happen at a really superficial level? If you want to trigger that vulnerability as a leader, unfortunately, the buck stops with you and you have to start being vulnerable with your team for them to be vulnerable with you and they'll start to recognize it. And initially it might be quite clunky because if you haven't been vulnerable previously, then it can be like a, what's Shane doing? This is weird. Like he's got all fluffy on us. But the reality is you can say something like, uh, one of the, tip, the, the, the great conversation starters we have is, so that's all from me, but there might be something that other be, somebody else has got to add. Who's got some great ideas? That's a vulnerability trigger in terms of, I don't have all the answers. Or a question like, what have we missed, team? What are we missing here? What, what haven't we thought about? Again, you're inviting opinions from the team, not positioning yourself as this person on a pedestal, but actually connecting with them by being more vulnerable at their level. Yeah, I, I like the vulnerability conversation. It's a really delicate one from, from my experience with leaders I've talked to, because there are two ways that you can approach that vulnerability. One is vulnerability in its purest form, which is, I feel really uncomfortable saying this, but I know it's important and it needs to be said. And it's often comes across really vulnerable. The other person who says, I need my team to be vulnerable. Therefore, I'm going to tell this really emotional story and hope that they will do it in response or with this kind of like underlying motivation. A lot of people I talk to, they're always worried that they're going to say something that's going to come across like they're trying to manipulate the situation. And I always say to them, like, if you're having that thought, there's a good chance you're not. <laughs> like if the people who are, who are sitting there going, I'm going to manipulate this, are thinking that through their head. But if you're sitting there going, this feels really awkward, clunky, this feels difficult to share, then I'm like, it's okay. And I guess vulnerability is, so one of the things I say is vulnerability has to be led, not forced in the sense that you, you, when you lead it, you be vulnerable with no expectation of anything in return. But generally when you do that, as a result, people are given permission to be able to be vulnerable and they, they often reciprocate that vulnerability. Um, that's what I've seen in the, in the workshops and that's the, the, the things that I've seen. Do you see that as a similar experience? It's exactly the same. Yeah. If you, if you are trying to force vulnerability, then chances are we have amazing bullshit detectors built into us. And so your team is going to be cynical and they're going to be like, what is happening here? This is not, this is not great. We're not comfortable with this. Whereas if, as you say, if a leader opens with, I haven't got all the answers and I'm not sure, or I'm, I'm thinking about this, but I'm kind of uncomfortable to share it. 
then people then tend to see that as a little bit more authentic. So that vulnerability needs to be authentic. It needs to come from a good place. If you're doing it, to, as you say, to manipulate the outcome, chances are your team's going to sniff that out pretty quickly. And you might not be found out there and then, but you'll certainly be found out down the track. Yeah, I, I would even go as far to suggest that if you if you get the sense that you're doing it with that alternative kind of motivation, it would be better off to not share that story or not kind of make that statement at the risk of potentially damaging the trust of the psychological safety that you have within the team before you share. I mean, one of the things that, that came to mind is, is I posted something on LinkedIn recently, which is that your conversations can only go as deep as they are safe. And so you have to be able to create the safety to allow that vulnerability over time. And I, the, one of the ways that I often encourage leaders to do it is to find these personal non-intrusive questions that you can start to ask. And so personal is not like, tell me about what's going on in your job right now. Tell me about life outside of work. But non-intrusive means that the person can answer to the degree of safety that they feel okay talking about. And I did this in a workshop yesterday with, with a team and we were, there was all kinds of questions that we had asked. One of them was a really silly question. It was like, if we were to find you at the fridge in the middle of the night, what would you be snacking on? And I loved it. It was just this kind of like fun, light <laughs> question. I'm like, you'd hundred percent catch me like stealing blueberries from the fridge. Other people were like, nah, for me, it's chocolate. And it was fun and it was light, but it got below the surface of like, you know, how was the game on the weekend? But you could go as deep as like, uh, we've, you know, uh, Chad Littlefield, who I think is extraordinary at this. He talks about, you know, he's got a question like, what's life teaching you right now? And that question could be answered as simple as, uh, look, telling, you know, reminding me to, you know, wear layers in Melbourne because it's freezing cold and then it's boiling hot. As opposed to someone who's saying, you know what life's teaching me right now is that, you know, my parents just passed away and I'm getting older and I'm more aware of legacy than ever before. So they can answer to the degree of safety that they feel is relevant to be vulnerable to that degree. Are there other things that you've seen that help people like practical tips that build that vulnerability and trust? So I love your question, uh, found at the fridge. I'm, I'm going to boom full of sugar that one. The one we use is what's something you wish you could have done, but you never got around to doing. And again, you know, you can, you can go as deep or not deep as, as you want. And the analogy we use in, in this situation, I'm, I, I told you I'll bring scuba diving into the conversation. <laughs> as a scuba diver, you know, you start to learn scuba diving standing up in a swimming pool and you put a mask on your face and you put your face in the water and then you start breathing with the gear. You don't go and do a tech dive to 75 or 100 meters straight away because that's super dangerous and people are going to be really uncomfortable doing things before they've got their familiarity and comfort with this new thing that's going on around them. And there's a whole lot of new sensations. Vulnerability is very similar. If you go into the deepest, darkest story and then go, right, now your turn, people are going to be like, what? Uh, no, I'm not ready for that. But if you start on the edge in the shallow end of the pool and you talk about those, you know, the fridge question, uh, what's something you wish you'd done and, and never got around to, then people can dip their toe in the water and then you can and say so that the idea of this helter-skelter or this spiral downwards is that once you start, you can take one step forward, down a little bit, one step forward, down a little bit. And gradually over time, the vulnerability grows. You can't just switch it on like a light switch. You've got to work your way into it over a period of time. And I know in this age of delivery, especially sort of post-COVID when we've got to catch up, we're, we're trying to catch up still since COVID, that we can sometimes want to just do something for half an hour in, a, in our team monthly meeting and, and tick off vulnerability. And unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. We, we talk a lot about it taking kind of nine months for people to rewire their brains. It takes nine months to make a baby brain. It takes about nine months to rewire a brain over a period of time to start really embedding some of those new behavioral traits and beliefs. 
that are going to mean that when the stresses come on, people don't revert back to the old behavior. You've got to undo some of that stuff uh, to get there. Just wanted to kind of add on to the the scuba diving metaphor because I, I think it was really profound because it does give the very visual picture of a person taking someone really deep. It's almost like sometimes even you've got the scuba gear and you're ready to go deep. You just grab someone else without the gear and you just drag them down to 75 feet with you. And they're going, I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet. But also the other side of it, I think, which is worthwhile taking note of is obviously we're in scuba diving. When you resurface, not just pulling people out quickly. I've been in some environments where things get really vulnerable and they get to that depth. And then either we haven't allowed enough time in the meeting for the conversation to resurface or the leader doesn't know how to handle something at that depth. And so they rip it back out and they rip it back out with humor. They rip it out with a statement or something that feels like it's cutting someone off and you pull people up too quickly and everyone starts feeling really uncomfortable or people get injured as a result of that. So I would also suggest like know how to take people deep slowly, but also know how to resurface people out of those vulnerable conversations. So you don't do more damage and harm in the process of that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, when I work with exec teams, one of the things we always say is let's put less on the agenda for today, because there's always that, okay, it's the, it's the high performance teams guy coming in to do this, the thing, the high performance thing for, for between 10 and 11, and we're going to get that nailed and then we'll go back to budgets. I'm like, well, no, like we need to spend some time talking and, and, and much the same as you've probably seen in your workshops, you have to ease people in and it needs to be sufficient time at depth for the work to actually be done. And often one of the things that probably you find the same thing is actually your job is just to create some space for the leadership teams to step off the hamster wheel and to just to start thinking, to activate that default mode network where they're not in high delivery mode, but they're just reflecting and thinking and daydreaming because they need time to get there. And if you're trying to do a high performance teams session in, you know, in 40 minutes, chances are people are doing one of three things. They're thinking about their last meeting and how they didn't quite say what they wanted to say. And so they're not tuned in yet. They're tuned in and they're paying attention or they're thinking about the next meeting or watching the emails come in. So you've got to create space for culture to happen. And the thing that we see as a continual challenge right now is everybody's just running and sprinting and going so fast because there's too many priorities. And so it's really about how do we slow you down enough for your smart brain to start working on connecting the dots. Mm, there's that, I think creating margin for connection is not just creating a offsite once a quarter, it's creating margin in every single day for those connective moments. So margin might be, I'm not going to schedule my meetings back to back because I need five or 10 minutes to just wander through the office and just say hi to people. Or, I, or you know, it could be that I, I want to allow just two to three minutes at the start of our team's meetings to ask some really kind of personal, non-intrusive questions so that we can get to connect. Or every single one-on-one -on -one with your team is carving out a little bit of margin to intentionally focus on on connection. You said there's a couple other practical tips come to mind for you. Yeah, I mean, the, from, from a connection perspective, we work a lot in the employee onboarding space and helping organizations rebuild their employee onboarding strategy because that is essentially the first connection to the tribe. And that starts at the end of the recruitment process. And this, you know, we've identified six or seven really simple things that can be done by a leader which massively differentiate the connection that that new starter feels into the business. And, you know, let me give you a really simple example, the phone call before you start in the new job. Now, we've done research on this and more than half of leaders don't make a phone call to say, oh, hey, Shane, um, I just wanted to let you know I'm really excited you're joining the team. Uh, let's start you on Tuesday so you can have a day off on us. 
let's start you at 10 o'clock in the morning so I can get all my noise out of the way and I can pay you full attention. Let me make sure I've got a plan for you when you arrive. Here's where you're going to be turning up. Here's where you're going to park. Here's what I recommend you wear. Have you got any questions? And by the way, you've got my phone number now. So if you need to text me, drop me a text. You know, that type of phone call makes a massive difference to whether that person even turns up on day one. And I think, I can't remember the exact statistics. I think it's like 12 or 13% of people sign the contract and don't even turn up because nobody called them. And they were like, oh, I don't really know if, like, if it's real or where to go or what to do. And this other company has offered me and sent me a, a, a better solution, so I'll go there. The idea of um, trying to help people settle in is, is key. And so we've done a lot of work in that space around how do we create some very practical, not overloading already busy hiring managers with extra tasks, but just putting a bit of structure and framework around the tasks that are good practice, not even best practice. Let's just get to good practice from no practice and give you some simple solutions for that. So there's practical tips are like, hey, let's just do a phone call. Hey, let's actually be available on day one. Let's have a chat during the first week. And you know, some of this for, if, for more corporate audiences, this sounds really obvious, but if you're a, a workforce that's maybe multi-site or fully remote, you know, those things require a bit of thought. And, and what we always say in, in the ways of working realm is these are simple, but not necessarily easy things to achieve. And so the time that we create for the ways of working sessions is focused on the how are we going to do this? The what is easy. It's the how and why are we implementing those into our, our ways of working? So those kind of simple practical tips around employee onboarding would be kind of the, the immediate ones that spring to mind. So true. I, I love the idea of don't confuse simple, um, uh, easy with simple uh, or simple with easy. Because uh, I think a lot of these things seem very, very straightforward, but the embedding of these things actually take a lot of intention and effort. Um, I, I, this, is, this is the reason why I could talk to you all day. We've touched on one of those, those areas of purpose, abundance, connection, exploration, and downtime. So for people who want to learn more about them, they're going to have to pick up your book and talk a little bit more where it talks all about this. Um, I, one of the, a couple of things that stood out to me, there's one line that you said in this, which was this, like treat people as a person, not as a position. And I think as a leader, if you took nothing away from this, this whole conversation amongst the many things that were to see people as people, not just a chess piece on a chessboard that got moved around. I think that is a really profound idea. And we all need connection. And, and when we feel connected to all these things, tribe, plan, network, when we feel connected to our organization, we, we feel like we belong. And when we belong, we do our best work. We're, we feel like we're working with people, not for people. And it does create a better outcome for the entire organization and for your team. And so one kind of ingredient of building a culture of high performance, uh, which has been really, really helpful. If you were to have like 30 seconds, you grab someone by the shoulders. I, I call it your soapbox. If you're still in your soapbox and you, you grab them by the shoulders, you said, listen to me, I need to tell you this. Like, what, what's that one thing that you would want to say to people about this conversation? Oof, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the pieces that always gets in the way of high performance culture work or people stuff in general is we're just too busy. I don't have time for this. And it was actually what led to me writing the book because when you actually dig a little bit deeper with the, I don't have time for this, that's probably because I think it's going to take a lot of time. That's probably because I have a lot of go stuff going on inside my head and I don't have the headspace to be creative or come up with a way of doing this. And, and I can't afford to go off site for all these meetings and workshops and events. So I just need something simple. 
And and so for me, it was like, well, what if, if I could give you a recipe book to follow, which is exactly, explains exactly those five things, how they work and how to influence them, would that be of interest? And if you say yes, then, then I would steer you in the direction of my book. Amazing. And what I love about the book is that you've got these uh, it's not just, here's some research, here's some ideas, here's some opinions. It's it's really robust thinking, but it's also backed up with really practical action steps in your chapters. So, you know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, that's amazing. That's a, such a good thought. And you go, but what on earth do I do with that thought? Or what do I do with that thinking? You've kind of helped people fill in the blanks to go, okay, look, do this, say this, like made it really straightforward and practical. Was that really intentional? A hundred percent. We call it a playbook. It's the it's the leader's playbook for building a high performance culture. Because again, you know, when you're busy, when you're reading in the evening, you're like, okay, so how do I how do I put this into effect? How do I make this a reality in my team? It's it's the same reason that a lot of leadership programs don't work because you go off on a course and you're fire hosed with lots of content, and then you come back and you've got an, a week full of meetings and an e- email inbox full of emails. And you've got no headspace to contextualize for your team's needs. So if we were to say, well, ask this question, put these questions on a whiteboard, um, add this to a flip chart and, and, and start the conversation. If we could break it down to that level, and essentially that's what the action tips are. It's like the conversation guide, the facilitator guide, the, the foolproof mechanism for building those elements with your team. And we also back it up with some real stories. So examples from the likes of JCPenney and Amazon and people that we've worked with who have gone on the journey of building those pieces. And we use them to elaborate the story. But it's, it's essentially, it's a practical guide. So we could, we could almost call it a recipe book, but we, we'll probably get in trouble with the cooking fraternity. So we call it a playbook, but it literally is blow by blow, step by step, follow the dots. I love that. So the book for people will be out now. They can get a hold of it. Where will be the best place to connect with you? Where do they, what do they look for? How do they find the book? Yep. Great question. So initially we're going to be launching through our website. So just go to jimmyburrows.com and click the book button and it'll take you straight through to be able to get to that. We believe in the first chapter so much we're actually giving it away so if you're not quite sure and you just want to get a teaser then just grab the chapter on purpose read it for yourself and if you're still happy with what we've written come back and, and get the rest if you can't wait and you want to buy it all now you can you can get it through the website later in the year we're going to do an audiobook version of it for those people who prefer to listen or the sort of the podcast listeners they like to to listen in the car or at the gym so we'll have an audiobook version as well so that's the two places you can go get it. Amazing. And the book's called? Beat Burnout, Ignite Performance, The Leader's Playbook to Building a High Performance Culture. I love it. The I, I like when something has the written on it because <laughs> it is the book to get for you know, building a culture of high performance. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation and, and thanks for, well, you've, you've given me some gems to think about as well. So I appreciate that too. It's always good when you have a conversation, you learn something. Agreed, agreed. Thanks so much. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.